I take refuge in Buddha, we take refuge in Dharma, we take refuge in Sangha. Good afternoon, everybody. People that... It's morning. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Those I just met, a few that I haven't met, and many that I've known for quite a while. Nice to see you today. We had a weekend retreat here. It was the first weekend retreat um, with more than residents in over a year. We had 14 guests over the weekend, most of whom are seated amongst you as we speak. And we've had Zoom retreats all year, as most of you know. We've had Zoom Sunday programs all year, as most of you know. And this retreat was also a Zoom retreat, and this Sunday program is also a Zoom Sunday program. So we're evolving with the times, and we called this retreat uh, Homecoming Retreat or Coming Home Retreat to uh, mention the fact that people were coming in and homecoming here to this home for the first time in a year. For some people, it was the first retreat that they had done. We anticipated that the first open retreat we would have would be a whole bunch of old hats, but it didn't turn out that way. And it was quite nice to have our first retreat be what for some people was their first retreat. So for those who participated this last weekend, thank you for having done so. It's a wonderful thing to be able to practice together and I'll talk a little bit about retreat and wrap that up for us some. And I'll, I'll start by sharing the definition of retreat, as I read online, which is the withdrawal from enemy forces as a result of their superior power. <laughs> so hopefully that resonates with you. <laughs> So when asks you why you went on retreat, you can tell them why. <laughs> Beyond retreat, looking at when we really do something in an intentional way, um, two things happen when we really do something over and over. One is inevitably you learn something. And two, inevitably, you get stuck in a rut. These are both seemingly inevitable when we really commit to doing something. The more intentionality you bring into whatever it is you do, the more you learn. And inevitably, intentionality waxes and wanes. Thus, we appear stuck at times. Ruts come and go. The ups and downs of retreat and anything that we do for a long time are a result of this. Even if we took our absolute favorite thing and did it for slightly longer than we want to do it for, we would encounter staleness. We would encounter a rut, so to speak. 
But in a meditation retreat, because the exterior is so steady, so stable, so consistent, so predictable, we observe the root cause of the ups and the downs as being inside of ourselves. The only thing that seems to change in this constancy of our exterior in the retreat. One of the residents here, Ryujaku, talked about for the first time ever being seated at a place in the zendo that was immediately right in front of one of the uh, carved out circular holes in the floor. Uh, ventilation. Shine was asking me why they're there. <laughs> but, and, and, and he, he, was, he was talking about how it was a powerful thing to have that point right in front of him. It really brings you into a very specific, unchanging nowness. The more clearly your exterior is stable, and then the more obviously the movement of the interior becomes apparent. And the world has been in a kind of retreat over the last year. Carbon emissions in the United States went down 13% over the year due to less travel. Many people stayed at home. For some people, this was a blessing. For some people, this was a curse. One purpose of retreat is to practice bringing meaning to whatever it is that we're doing. If we have enough faith that the root cause of dissatisfaction can be found within, then at the very least we can approach finding meaning in anything that we do. Retreat is designed to not be very stimulating. And perhaps everything, with the exception of flat-out sleeping, is more stimulating than the conditions of retreat. However, many people, and hopefully all of you, have some experience in retreat or in a meditation period of touching into some relationship with, oh, just this is enough. This. And if we do have some relationship with that truth, and it's always lingering in the background somewhere for us that somehow whatever we're doing, whatever we're engaged in, is also enough. Because this experience of just this is enough 
as we experience in retreat or in meditation period or, or however we as individuals come into contact with that, because that experience itself is simply the bare experience of being alive, which is reliable because it's the bare experience of being alive. It's reliable and available and something we can return to and we know is always present, is always present. We may not always be aware of it, but we know that it's always present and something that we can return to and thus have some faith that, that we can approach satisfaction, approach meaning always. Another aspect of retreat is to reevaluate our values, what it is that we feel is important in life. And for all of us, what we recognize as our wisdom, what we recognize as our delusion, is all really quite mixed up and entangled. And because of this, our, our egos have their claws in even the most sacred aspects of our life. In retreat, we watch how some of the things that our individual wants just aren't that important. They start to dissolve in the background of this, just this is enough. We come to see that just because we want something neither means that we should have it nor means that we'll necessarily be satisfied if we get it. A pivotal, a pivotal moment happens when we become more interested in the fact that we want something than in getting what we want. When we have enough grounding and basic equanimity that as we begin to want something or to fear something or to regret something or to fantasize something or to get angry at something, we can become more interested in this process of change in what's really happening in our uh, landscape of being, more interested in that than in the fruit that it's, that it's dangling, that we want or, or are trying to avoid. And when we have this deep curiosity to become more interested in What's what is going on than what we would like to be going on? This is very liberating. If physical pain is something that you work with regularly during retreat, what is the exact moment when the pain becomes a problem and where does that problem reside? We go from comfort to discomfort inevitably as, as embodied 
organisms. And as, as comfort goes towards discomfort, what's the moment when, when discomfort becomes a problem, when pain becomes a problem? When we have real curiosity about that, we gain a certain kind of empowerment because we can even look forward to um, difficulty as it comes because we're so curious about what difficulty actually is on an inner level. And we want to have a certain future. It could be very simple. Maybe we have plans tomorrow that are dependent upon certain weather. How is it that in this moment, in this, just this is enough, we can come to believe that the future even could be a certain way and start to want that certain way with our bodies as if our desire could control. How does this happen? And then further, when all of that wanting has settled, even even settling the spiritual wanting of wanting to know what is this reality, when even that has settled, what remains? Just just being here. And not even just us being here, but just just being here and awake to all objects in existence as openly and as cleanly as, as the sun distributing its rays And what is the function of coming out of retreat? Well, life itself, of course, is a devotional practice. And how fascinating a thing that we even have a life. How fascinating a thing that we can even muster up that question, why do we have a life? As if we could conceive of an alternative And this notion of desire, of wanting, how interesting it is that we have the ability to imagine that things could be some other way. That's fascinating. What's the function of coming out of retreat, of a process that we undergo ending? Maybe we don't come out of retreat. It's just a framework. But of course, things change around us and we inevitably change both in response to them and because we are in relationship with them. So things change around us, so do we on the outside and on the inside. Now to use a playful metaphor, if you were in a, if you're playing in a basketball game, you could never 
request of your opponent to work on this dribbling drill for a moment <laughs> before you drive. You know, that, that didn't work. That doesn't work. Because in life, things come real time. And there's no stepping outside of that. There's no stepping away from that. In reality, sometimes we are prepared. And in reality, sometimes we are not prepared. None of us were prepared for lockdown a year ago, and it happened. Retreat helps us engage our lives in a thorough and honest way. But it is not the case that we practice, that we do our dribbling drills, that we count our breaths, that we do some metta, some loving kindness reps, and then we're just ready for everything. Ready for the enemy forces. Is that what I typed? No. Oh, okay. It's not the case that we do that and we're just ready for the enemy forces. Yes. In, in films, this is a classic film plot line. Someone like undergoes some intense training or if it's more like a Marvel film, they have some freak accident that all of a sudden turns them into the most something or other on earth. And no one can compete with them or touch them in any way whatsoever. Just this thing happens and then they're just totally it. And of course, in this film, all the while, there's a subplot that the same thing is happening to somebody else somewhere else who has a slightly different emotional tone such that it's obvious they're the villain. <laughs> and then like at minute 47, they meet for the first time. And then 35 minutes later, they have this epic brawl. After which the villain fails and the hero, after usually some inner conflict that requires a discovery of humility and usually asking for some help of others, succeeds. So even in our fantastic films, we recognize that continuous practice is a thing. Insofar as we become, through practice, through practice of any kind, more ready to face our lives, it's only in that we become more willing to do the continual facing of our lives, to do the continuous practice that's necessary. Practice doesn't ever set up the condition 
wherein we no longer need to practice, it just helps us continue practicing. Coming out of retreat. This, this metaphor doesn't work for me so well personally because I've fit in the same clothes since I was 14. But some people talk about trying on old clothes after a time and the clothing fits a little bit differently, right? And this is kind of like coming out of retreat. You do the same old things, maybe even have the same old thoughts, but they just kind of fit a little bit differently. You got to figure out how to wear them again, how to make this work. And sometimes it takes a few days, but I've always found that I like the new fit better. Because we never really leave retreat, it's important to touch back into this bare experience of living. And it's important to touch back into it frequently. This experience wherein we're more interested in the miracle of our life than in the things that we hope to get out of our life. This experience is always here, but we can forget it just as easily as we could become thirsty. And as I mentioned, we call this retreat homecoming retreat. This experience of resting in the bare essentials of coming home. So yes, this retreat was called Welcome Home. It's funny to look at Soten's talk and my talk. I have about twice as many words per page as he does. <laughs> I'll probably omit some of it <laughs> because we hopefully have a song to share at the end. Um, so basically, I want to talk about the same things about um, this investigation of the present moment that is our home and about um, the investigation of what satisfaction is and what dissatisfaction is, which is one of the primary, maybe the primary uh, spiritual work. And this, during the retreat, I shared the life story of the Buddha, and um, he, like many of us, was drawn to this question of, what is this suffering? What is this dissatisfaction? Even when I get what I want, even when I have, you know, and the Buddha supposedly had everything that a person might want, good looks, good relationships, good entertainment, good skills, good education, uh, beautiful palace, and yet he still wasn't satisfied. And so this drive to look within ourselves to find what is this dissatisfaction and is satisfaction possible? Is freedom from suffering possible? And you know, the, I think the whole practice can really be summed up in this phrase of welcome home or coming home. So what is a home? A home is a refuge. A home is a place of safety. 
a place of return, a place where we can rest and be our honest, naked selves. And we think of this home, this place, as a specific place. But through our practice and through our realization, we come to understand that our true home is always with us, that it's not dependent on a specific place in the world or on the conditions of our life. So we come to notice more and more this ever-present refuge, this ever-present refuge that is our very own being. It's the only place of true safety. It's the placeless place, you might say, where everything returns, from which everything arises. And one way to frame what we're doing in our Zen practice is we are just recognizing this refuge, this home, recognizing it again and again and again, and for most of us again, <laughs> and slowly over the days of looking, over the years of retreat, we begin uh, to be able to stay in touch with this refuge, to sink back into ourselves, to know the peace of our inherent being. When the Buddha was awakened, it, it said that we, it's recorded what he said, supposedly. <laughs> the story has been passed down through many languages for 2,500 years. But this is what we say that the Buddha said when he awakened when he recognized this refuge, this true nature that is what we are. He said, how wonderful, how wonderful, how wondrous all beings are inherently endowed with the wisdom and compassion of the Buddha. All beings are inherently endowed with the wisdom and compassion of awakening. So he's saying that we already have it, that we already are it. And then he said, they just don't realize it due to their confusion. So our confusion, our confused thinking is like a cloud that covers the blue sky. It's like a veil that covers our true face. We're confused about who we are and we're confused about what is happiness is. We think that happiness is arranging our conditions just right, our mind, our posture. You know, we bring it into the practice even arranging our partnership, our relationships, what people think of us, what job we have, what possessions we have, what outfit we have, what body we have. If we arrange it just right, then we'll be happy. And most human beings spend their whole life doing this, searching for happiness in somewhere else, someplace else. And it's just not true. Happiness is inherent to us, like the Buddha said. This peace of being is always with us. 
And so our, our job and practice is to still the mind enough through, through concentration practice, through present moment attention, that we can begin to recognize this inherent peace and, and question, are these thoughts true? Who, who is thinking these thoughts? So this is the practice of samadhi, present moment concentration, the practice of inquiry. What is this dissatisfaction? Who is it that's suffering? Is, and is there peace under that? What is my true nature? And then the, what's called the third leg of practice, so samadhi, prajna, wisdom, clear seeing, and then sila, um, love, kindness. And of course these all work together. We concentrate the mind, we can see clearly into the reality of what we are, and then we naturally love from that. We naturally are uh, work for the benefit of others, for the freedom for others, for ourselves, for others, which of course are completely interconnected. Also in the Buddha's awakening, I didn't share this detail during the retreat, but he, he supposedly, this is a legend of his birth, uh, sorry, this is his birth, so it parallels his awakening in some ways, that he was born, he took seven steps, could already walk, <laughs> and he pointed to the heaven and he pointed to the earth, and he said, I alone am the world-honored one. And from the perspective of the individual self, this seems quite arrogant. I, I'm the one. <laughs> you all, nah. <laughs> and that's some people's experience, experience when they have deep, profound awakenings, is that kind of arrogance arises that happens as in Master Hakuin. He was just, wow, amazing, and I have it. No one else has it. <laughs> um, so we can watch that in our minds. I'm the spiritual one. I'm the peaceful one. I'm the awakened one which of course is just more uh, delusion. Um, and, uh, but from the perspective of oneness, this um, mo- movement, this proclamation by the Buddha is a profound pointing to the unity of what we are, to the non-separation of self and other, which of course is the primary delusion, the the belief in separation is the primary delusion that fuels this aversion, this this dissatisfaction, this wanting some things for ourselves and not wanting other things for ourselves. So so this welcoming um, is, you could say, the... Um, the whole of the path, this welcoming what we call other, what we call other, other people, what we call other, those parts of ourselves that we push away. Um, So we come home, we see our true nature, and then we include everything in that. So welcome, um, welcome fear, Welcome aversion, welcome discomfort, welcome pleasure, welcome, what's the opposite of pleasure? Pain. Pain. 
and in boredom. and in that welcome boredom. What is boredom? So we start to, and with the the tool of um, present moment attention, training the mind to concentrate, we can really start to go very carefully into what is boredom, what is pain, and we can um, really become so intimate that no longer uh, are we separate from it. And this is an amazing relief, just becoming what we are, whatever it is. It's not only some things, it's whatever is appearing. That's the freedom. So, so this welcoming, so these two words I think can sum up all the path, home and welcome, welcome and home. And do you think that's good? I didn't go past the first like, page. Is that good advice? No, is that good? Oh, I have one. I'll share one more thing. <laughs> you want to read the rest of my talk? You're welcome to later. <laughs> okay, this is a um, poem which is attributed um, to one of the first women ancestors, one of the women that practiced with the Buddha in India 2,500 years ago, and her name is Rohini. Um, and this is a, an English translation or an English, English interpretation translation of the poem. And Rohini means wandering star. She says, you don't become the cloth just because you put on the robes. You don't become the Buddha just because you sit still. You don't become the cloth just because you put on the robes. You don't turn into empty space just because you carry a bowl. The sun doesn't bow down. Trees don't throw flowers at your feet. Birds don't start answering when you call. The path holds even our biggest mistakes. The path will make room for even your deepest regrets. But you don't become the cloth of the robe overnight. It can begin very quietly, something you barely even notice, like the touch of water on your skin, like a knife in a drawer, like the next five minutes, unless they're your last. The path isn't a line on a map. It's a great shining world. Enter wherever you like. You might get thrown back once or twice or three times or 500. But if you push through the outer layers, oh, my sisters, my brothers, then you will know the true welcome that is the very essence of the path. So Sotina and I wrote a song together. As many of you know, he is a musician and I am not. <laughs> So I'll try to sing my notes right, but I cannot promise it. 
tell them what the song is about. Um, well, the song is about just what our talk is about. It's about this true home. It's about the stories that we tell ourselves, bad and good. It's about recognizing this aloneness, which um, includes everyone and everything. I alone am the world-honored one. <laughs> we wrote this on a train car together on the way up from California. It's a sad story from the start These dreams, they write themselves inside my heart I am listening, I am learning But everything's still yearning for the dark A glad morning starts the day I guess my heart woke me up this way The sun is shining I guess the night woke And became the day What do you remember, darling? Every memory is calling you to walk alone. Where you'll never be alone. story to tell and some of us tell our stories rather well and what do you believe I hope, hope that you believe the best of me everything to me is calling as I slowly falling down I'm alone and I always am at home just this morning bird flew in to say pack me up your tail and I'll fly it away and she took off at dawn By evening time, the rest of me was gone When you surrender, darling Every moment is your calling Welcome this 
us alone Welcome to your home Where you'll never be alone Welcome this alone Welcome to your home Where you'll never be alone We'll close with the four bodhisattva vows. <laughs> <laughs>